Jackson. We will read from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. That's Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. All right, just an hour and a half. There we go. Are we having trouble with this? We are. There we go. I got you, Mingu. <clears throat> I want to remind you tonight. Ooh, this is bad. I want to remind you that tonight we're going to have a prayer service. So I've just got to manage through one sermon today. And you only have to manage through one sermon with me. But tonight we'll be having a prayer service. We encourage you to come back as we'll have multiple people leading us in various prayers. We have a theme tonight on evangelism. We're going to be praying for the outreach efforts of this congregation as well as for our missionaries and, and, and for the different uh, things going on here that are geared towards leading the lost to Christ. So we encourage you to come back and be a part of that service. Pray with us and sing with us and, and read scripture with us this evening. That being said, I, I want to begin this morning with a poem that some of you have certainly heard before. There were four people. Once upon a time, there were four people. Let me get it going correctly. Their names were everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important task to do, and everybody was asked to do it. Everybody thought somebody was going to do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. And I forgot the rest. Hold on. When nobody did it, everybody got angry because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought somebody was going to do it, but nobody realized that nobody was going to do it. Consequently, everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. That little poem is unfortunately all too real in the church at times. At times, the church has a blindfold that that poem speaks to. And it's a blindfold that I'm going to call apathy. Now, do you know what apathy is? Hopefully you do. Apathy is a lack of interest or a lack of enthusiasm or a lack of concern. And apathy is a blindfold that gets worn by Christians more often than we realize, and it is quite a deadly blindfold when you really think about it. And so this morning, as we continue this series where we're dealing with spiritual vision impairment, I want us to consider how it's possible that you or myself can be wearing the blindfold of apathy. 
And when we journey throughout the pages of Scripture, we'll see that that blindfold was worn more often than we even realize. I want to begin with this, though. I want us to understand how we might be wearing this blindfold, and, and I want to begin by saying that we might wear the blindfold of apathy when we exert minimal effort. If you'll turn to the book of Genesis, go to the fourth chapter, I want you to notice and pay attention to a brief story that happens there, a story that you're familiar with, Genesis chapter 4. We read about Cain and Abel, these two sons of Adam and Eve. We don't have much of a backstory on these two guys. We just are simply told they're born, and boom, we're into the story. There's not a whole lot of lead up to, to their, their one big story, but one thing we can infer from the text is that these two guys had come to an understanding that their relationship with God required them to make an offering to him. And, and, and both of them do so. Both of them make an offering to the Lord. Here's how Cain's offering is described. It's at the end of verse 3. We're told that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. You can look at verse 4. In the first half of verse 4, you'll find out that Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. So we have a description of both of them making an offering. Both of them contributed in that fashion. Both of them fulfilled the obligation that they had grown to understand in regards to their relationship with God. But Scripture makes it very clear to us that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but not for Cain. That's what Genesis says. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 and verse 4 says it this way, that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. There's something about Abel's sacrifice, something about Abel's offering that was better than Cain's, that God appreciated more than Cain's. Now, what was it? Some people will argue that it's the content of the offering. Some people will contend that because Abel brought an animal sacrifice instead of a, 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 an agri a vegetable or a vegetation-type sacrifice, that his was better than Cain's. But we have to remember, the description we're given of these two guys is that Cain's field of expertise, his occupation, was in agriculture. It was in growing crops. It was working with the ground. Abel's expertise, Abel's occupation, it was working with animals. So both of them are giving of their means, which is a statement made in 2 Corinthians about one's offering to God. They, they were giving from that which they had. So I don't think the issue here has to do with the, the content of their sacrifice or the object of their sacrifice. In fact, when you journey into Mosaic Law sometime after this, you'll find out that God prescribed both animal sacrifices and grain sacrifices. God was not opposed to utilizing produce and sacrifices to him. So I don't think it's the content of the sacrifice. I think it's the intent of the sacrifice. If you'll notice there, we have these descriptions of Cain and Abel making a sacrifice, making an offering. And the text describes Abel's offering as extraordinary. He brought the firstborn of his flock. That shows prioritization. He brought the fat portion as well. That demonstrates sacrifice. When Abel brought his offering, he wanted to demonstrate to God how much God meant to him. But then you have Cain's offering, and, and we're told that Cain 
simply brought an offering. No details provided because Cain didn't go to any extra measure. He brought an ordinary offering that day. And Cain's intent was to fulfill an obligation without giving too much away. He didn't want to sacrifice anything. He didn't want to do anything that took away from himself in the process. I think that's why the intent of the sacrifice, the intent of the offering, is the reason that God found Abel's to be more pleasing to him. And yet we do the very same thing, don't we? All too often at Christians, we approach God with our minimal effort, with our minimal sacrifice, with our minimal obligation. We don't go the extra mile for God. Oftentimes, we don't make the sacrifice for Him. All I've got to do is show up to, to worship Sunday morning, and I've checked the box. I don't need to do anything extra. I don't need to make time for Bible class. I don't need to try to assemble on Sunday night or Wednesday night when they come back together. I don't need to do the extra stuff. I just need to do the ordinary stuff. That's the easy example for me to give. What about the hard examples? God's told me to love my wife even though she may not respect me the way that he's prescribed. Am I willing to show the affection to her that God requires of me, that God expects of me, that God holds me accountable to, even when she doesn't show me the respect that he's holding her accountable to? Am I willing to do the extra? Am I willing to sacrifice of, of my time, of my money, of my energy, because God has told me to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Am I willing to engage in those sometimes difficult, sometimes uncomfortable conversations and interactions with the people because they have a soul that's lost and they deserve to hear? Am I willing to do the extra and not just the ordinary? See, we have to remember that Scripture teaches us to make every effort. When I began this series, I referenced 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, where we're instructed to make every effort to supplement our faith. And then it, goes, then it goes on to list the, what is sometimes called the Christian graces, and, and those are what we're supposed to be adding to our faith. And I told you that whenever I come across that phrase, make every effort, it stands out to me. Because that phrase, make every effort, it implies that, that I'm going to not spare any expense. It implies that I'm not going to permit any other focus. It implies that I'm not going to prioritize anything else. To make every effort implies sacrifice. To make every effort implies focus. To make every effort implies maximum expenditure of energy. And here's the thing. We're not just called to make every effort to supplement our faith. We're called to make every effort to enter through the narrow door in Luke chapter 13, verse 24. We're called to make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification in Romans chapter 14, verse 19. We're called to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. We're, we're called to make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. We're called to make every effort to confirm our calling and election in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. And finally, we're called to make every effort to be found spotless, to be found blameless, to be found at peace with Him, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14. 
if you really pay attention to all of those passages that call on us to make every effort, what you'll see is it encompasses the entirety of the Christian life. We're to make every effort to receive salvation, to hold on to our salvation. We're, we're instructed to make every effort to protect our purity. We're called to make every effort to improve our relationships. The, the whole of your life can be summed up in an expectation that you will make every effort. And think about it. We're talking about sacrifices that Cain and Abel made. Think about the sacrifice God made for you. Doesn't the fact that he didn't withhold his only son for your benefit, doesn't that tell you that he extended maximum effort for you? So shouldn't you reciprocate in kind? I think it is an uh, offense to God for us to approach him with minimal effort when he didn't withhold anything for our benefit. But yet we might be blinded by apathy if we're choosing the bare minimum effort route. But that's not the only way we can be blindfolded by apathy. We can also be blindfolded by apathy when we are non-committal. Go to Exodus chapter 32 with me, if you will. In Exodus chapter 32, you have one of, if not the worst day in the story of the Exodus. You may recall the events that unfold. Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the tablets of the testimony. When he descends, he discovers that the nation of Israel has, has broken out into uh, raucous and, and, and immoral behavior as they worship a golden calf. It angers Moses. Even more so, it angered God. When Moses descended, he broke those tablets of the testimony because, well, the children of Israel had just broken half of them. And then he went to the edge of the camp and he drew a line in the sand and he said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come join me. Here's what fascinates me about that story. We'll find out later in the book of Numbers that the number of people in Israel at that time was over 600,000 men. That didn't include the women and children. So it's very possible that the Israelites as an entire body of people numbered close to, if not more than, a million. But we know there was at least 600,000 men, fighting men, in that group. And that day when he drew the line in the sand and, and called on, on, on those who were on the Lord's side to join him, only one of the 12 tribes joined him. Only the tribe of Levi crossed that line and stood with him. And he gave orders for those that sided with him to kill their neighbors, assumedly killing those who either participated in the, the uh, idolatrous worship or those who led the idolatrous worship. We don't know for sure, but we do know how many died. Approximately 3,000. Now, they numbered over 600,000, but only 3,000 were executed that day. So what's going on with the other people? If only one tribe crossed the line, if only one tribe stood with God and only 3,000 died because of their participation in this idolatrous worship, then what about the other hundreds of thousands who didn't 
join sides with Moses and who didn't die. Maybe they didn't participate in the worship. But what they failed to do was stand up for God. They failed to make a choice. They, they were indecisive. That was their decision, was to be indecisive. They chose to sit on the fence. They refused to make a commitment to God that day. You ever thought about that? There are people at Mount Sinai who did not side with God, even though they may not have participated in the worship of, of that, that golden calf. There were people there that day who may have been spared execution even though they did participate in the worship of that golden calf, but they didn't choose to side with God when the time came for it. And they're not necessarily unlike you and I. Because when it comes to this world, we have this tendency to straddle the fence. We want one leg in the world and one leg out of the world, and it doesn't work that way. You can go to the book of James, to James chapter 4, and it's verse 4, I believe, where we're told that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The point is you don't get to have it both ways. You're either on God's side or you're not. You're either God's friend or you're his enemy. You have to decide, you have to choose where you're going to stand. You can't straddle the fence with God because he won't let you have two masters. And so we can be blindfolded by apathy when we're trying to, to have our feet in both camps. And we're no better than those Israelites who refused to side with God that day. Think about the greatest command. It instructs us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and all our strength in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. There is no room in that overarching command for indecision. There is no room in the greatest command for us to have one foot in the world and one foot with God. It's either all in or it's all out. So think for a moment today, where do you stand? Are you all in with God or are you trying to straddle the fence? Because even straddling the fence is being all out with God. We have to make our decision about where we stand. And if we refuse to do so, if we try to straddle the fence, if we try to have one leg in the world and one leg with God, we may be blindfolded by apathy. And we can also be blindfolded by apathy when we avoid responsibility. We can be really good at this one. Just don't assume responsibility. Just don't take responsibility. Just don't participate. So think about this situation in the life of Jesus. He's on trial, and he's standing before a guy named Pilate. If you go to John chapter 18 and chapter 19, you'll see that on three occasions, Pilate pronounced Jesus innocent of the charges that had been brought before him. You can see it in John, at the very end of John chapter 18, I think it's around verse 36, but then John, uh, in verse 38 actually, after Pilate privately interrogates Jesus, he comes out to the Jews and he says, I find no guilt in him. 
You can turn the page to chapter 19. And in verse 4, after Pilate has Jesus flogged, he presents Jesus to the Jews beaten and bloodied. And he says, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then just a couple of verses later, John chapter 19 and verse 6, after the crowd starts chanting, crucify him, Pilate, assumedly at this point, washed his hands and said, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Three times at the very least, Pilate pronounced Jesus innocent. Pilate is the highest reigning Roman uh, politician, if you will, in Judea at this point in time. What he says goes in Judea. So he pronounces Jesus innocent. That should close the matter. It should be done. Jesus should be walking away. But here's the problem with Pilate. Pilate's trying to appease this crowd at the same time. And so instead of being definitive and taking a stand and and standing for what he knows is right, he's going to try to avoid or shirk responsibility here. He does this by sending Jesus to Herod Antipas. He concludes, oh, Jesus is a resident of Galilee. Well, guess what? The guy who rules over Galilee is here in town. I'm going to try to put this off on him. When that backfires on him and, and Herod Antipas sends him back to Pilate, Pilate tries to come up with another strategy. Hey, you know what? I've got this custom. I've got this practice where I release one prisoner every year at the Passover. I will posit Jesus next to this other horrible murderer, criminal, that there's no way they're going to want back on the streets. And surely they'll choose Jesus. And that backfired on him. And then he said, well, maybe if I just punish him and just beat him senseless, maybe that'll be enough to satiate their desire for his demise. And so he sends Jesus out there to be flogged and brings him back shows him to the people, and they're still not satisfied. All of these steps are his process of trying to avoid the responsibility of declaring Jesus' innocence or guilt. And so often you and I find ourselves in the same position as Pilate, not so much in declaring Jesus' innocence or guilt, but in the situation of having to take responsibility or not. Men, I want you to think for a moment. Are you taking responsibility in your home as a spiritual leader? Are you taking responsibility in the church as a spiritual leader? God has tasked men with the responsibility of leadership, whether it's in the home or in the church. We'll never, get, we'll never grow tired or lack need for elders and deacons. And while some men may not be qualified for those positions, there are some men who are qualified who refuse to take responsibility. Let's take it down a notch. What about Bible classes? There are people in this room who could be excellent Bible class teachers, whether you're talking about teaching the children or teaching adults, it does not matter. Why is it that every quarter we're begging for teachers in the elementary classes? How hard is it? Okay, it's kind of hard. Kids are crazy. But why is it 
that people avoid the responsibility? Why is it that people don't want to do the work that God has provided for us to do? We're not unlike Pilate. Because we too find ways to avoid responsibility. I'm really good at avoiding responsibility when I want to. Just come look at my yard. Because when we don't want to do something, we'll run from it. Just like Jonah did. Here's what I want you to realize. Scripture indicates that responsibility is not avoidable. Did Jonah get away with it? No! He had to sleep in the belly of a fish. Now, I know Skip Jackson might enjoy that, but the rest of us, that's going to be smelly, and it's going to be awful with those digestive juices all around you. Think about Galatians chapter 6 for a moment. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. That is a declaration that you can't avoid responsibility. You're going to reap something. You may not even realize what you're sowing, but it comes with responsibility. But the verse I really want you to think about today is one I've talked about numerous times. It's James chapter 4 and verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We have to remember that sin isn't just a matter of doing what we're told not to do. Sin also takes place when we fail to do the things we know we're supposed to do. And far too often, that's the sin we commit. Far too often, we refuse to do the things we know God expects us to do, and we think we're okay, we think we're safe, but Scripture declares that that's a sin, that that's wrong, that that is avoiding responsibility. Let's not be like Pilate. Let's not be like Jonah. Let's be the people who are willing to take on responsibility when it comes. Because our Creator, the one who made us, He took responsibility for our mistakes. And He went to the cross and paid the price for our sin. Not sin that He committed, not sin that was His fault, sin that was our fault. We're made in His image and we're called to be holy like He is holy. I think that includes our pursuit of being responsible. We can also be blindfolded by apathy when we rely on our reputation. Sorry, I didn't click that ahead earlier. We read from Revelation chapter 3 a moment ago in our scripture reading. And Jesus began that section, that letter to the church in Sardis by saying, I know your works. You have the reputation, the reputation of being alive. Evidently, the church in Sardis was a really well-known congregation. Other churches and other Christians knew that the church in Sardis had been a good congregation. They had a, this great reputation around the brotherhood. You ever known a church like that? Just has a fantastic reputation and other churches know about them. And if you mention that congregation, they go, yeah, I know them. I know so-and-so goes there, or I know so-and-so's the preacher there. But Jesus went on to say, even though you've got this reputation of being alive, you're actually dead. They had a great reputation. But they were dead. 
And Jesus went on to instruct this church to remember what you receive and what you heard and keep it and repent. Now, what is he calling them to repent of? Their reputation? Certainly not. You have to think that nowhere in this letter does Jesus mention the presence of false teaching to this congregation. He had to say that to other churches in the book of Revelation, but not this one. False teaching was not the problem in Sardis. It appears they probably knew their their Bible quite well. I bet you could go there every Sunday and hear good gospel preaching. For all we know, it was a sound church. Jesus' problem with them was that they were sound asleep. It's also worth mentioning that Jesus never commended this church. He never criticized them for false teaching, but he never praised them for anything either. And so I think Jesus is calling on this church to repent of worshiping their reputation, of being satisfied with what they did in the past, and failing to be active in the present. Because he told them in verse 2, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So Jesus indicates that they had become inactive. They had become ineffective. They were like Samson. The power was gone, but they didn't know it yet. They remind me of an individual who one time approached me, not at this congregation, but approached me as I was trying to get Bible class teachers for children's classes. I know I've already referenced that, but this I've got to share. She, I asked her if she would teach a class, and she said, Oh, I did that for 20 years. It's my time to have a break and let somebody else do it. I understand the importance of a new generation learning to do the the jobs and the responsibilities. I understand the need for a rest, for a break. This individual wasn't saying, hey, I've been doing it every Sunday for this long. I really need to break this quarter. No, she was saying, I put my 20 years in like I'm in the military and it's time for retirement. That's relying on reputation. That's saying, hey, I've done a good job all this time. I'm going to quit now. Do you think that would have worked for the laborers in the vineyard? Do you think they would have still gotten paid if they started in the morning, quit at midday, and and went to to collect their, their reward? Do you think that would have been satisfactory to the employer? Or about the sheep and the goats? Do you Do you think... Jesus would have been pleased if they did it one time and called it quits. If they served by going to visit and, and, and provide food and water and, and, and taking care of the sick and all those things, if they did it one time, you think that's good enough? See, we can be blinded by apathy when we choose to say, hey, my past is great. I'm going to rest now. And I'm not saying that rest is unimportant or not useful or, or, or not needed. I'm just saying we should never look at our past and look at our reputation and say, I'm done. We might have to refocus. We might have to rechannel our efforts. We might have to find a new ministry to step into. We won't be able to do the same thing all the years of our lives. But it doesn't mean we stop working. It doesn't mean we stop serving the Lord. It doesn't mean we stop contributing to the kingdom. It wasn't that long ago I did a sermon in which I walked us through the parable of the talents. So I'm not going to do that today, but I do want to remind us of how that master responded to the one-talent servant when he learned that the one-talent servant had buried his talent instead of using it. The master called him wicked, lazy, and worthless. 
and sent him away to be punished. If we don't want to be accused of spiritual laziness, then we need to be constantly considering in every phase of our life, how can I serve the Lord now? Because throughout Scripture, we're told that as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. That's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. We're also told that in one body we have many members, and the members don't have all the same function, but we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, and we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us then use them. Romans chapter 12, verse 4 and 6. There is an expectation that we're going to contribute to the work of the kingdom continually, even if the way we contribute has to change throughout the phases of our life. Today I want us to be exposed to the blindfold of apathy because I believe that blindfold can be the most detrimental. And to help illustrate that as I close out, I want to make reference to a story that was shared on a Wednesday night here just a few weeks back in January by Isaac May. And I want to expound on that story a little bit. There was a lady, a 49-year-old woman named Esmond Green, who was taken to Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn, New York, on June 18, 2008. Her neighbors said she had a nervous breakdown. And so she was transported by medical experts to this hospital. Upon arrival, she waited in the psychiatric emergency room for nearly 24 hours. She was taken at 6.30 a.m., and the images I'm about to show you were at 5.30 a.m. the next day. The hospital had cameras installed throughout the emergency room, and they captured the events that unfolded. At 5.32 a.m. on June 19, 2018, that's one day after she was transported to the hospital, Esmond Green fell out of her chair and collapsed on the ground due to a blood clot. At 5.47 a.m., 15 minutes after she collapsed, patients can be seen walking around the emergency room completely ignoring her. At 5.53 a.m., that's 21 minutes after she collapsed, a security guard rounds the corner and observed Miss Green lying on the floor, but he does nothing. At 6.35 a.m., that's a little more than one hour after she collapsed, a medical professional finally approaches Mrs. Green for the first time. And then at 6.36, as that medical professional goes to get a gurney and some help, the security guard rolls in his chair around the corner to look at her again, but never even gets out of his chair. Advanced life support measures were then initiated to no avail, and at 7.10 a.m., she was pronounced dead. For 23 hours, she sat in the emergency room with no assistance. Then she collapsed with a blood clot, and it one hour before a medical professional ever came to talk to her, to approach her, to see if she needed help. Patients walked around, security guards checked on her. It's all caught on videotape. 
the reason Esmond Green died is not because of a blood clot. It's because of a spirit of apathy in that setting where nobody cared enough to do anything for her. And if you think that can happen to someone's physical life, how much more so to somebody's soul, which is so much more valuable. If a spirit of apathy comes over us, how many souls will be lost because we do nothing? And I'm not just talking about souls that don't know Christ. I'm talking about souls that do know Christ as well. How many of us risk our salvation because we've bought into apathy and we're okay not trying? We're okay letting somebody else be responsible. We're okay sitting down. We're okay not taking responsibility. See, Scripture asserts that there's a day coming when everyone will be judged and everyone will appear before Christ. And Jesus declares in Matthew chapter 7 that some that will appear before him will ask why they're not receiving the reward of eternal life. Because they thought they deserved it. They thought they were safe. And Jesus is going to tell them, I never knew you. And I think one of the reasons he won't recognize some people is because of a spirit of apathy. Because there's no place for apathy in the kingdom of God. And so this morning as we gather here, if, if you're battling such a spirit, if you're blindfolded by apathy, I encourage you to open your eyes. And you may need the help of, of brothers and sisters in Christ to do that. You may need us to pray for you. You may need us to hold you accountable. You may need us to walk side by side with you. Let us do that. Let us take off the blindfold of apathy so that the kingdom of God can grow like it's never grown before. You may also be here today. And you may never have put on Christ. You may never have become his child. You may never have had your sins washed away by his blood. And we invite you to make that decision today. If you haven't, Confess Jesus Christ as the risen Son of God. Repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. We invite you today that no matter what your situation is, if you're blinded by apathy, take off the blindfold and let's serve God together. If you have any need to respond to the invitation today, we invite you to come all together. We stand and sing.